Welcome to the podcast series, At the Kitchen Table, from Momentum Advisory Group. This series is about sharing stories from families we support and family advisors we partner with. Each conversation critiques the idea that to be wealthy is not just about how much money you have, but how you put your family's resources to use for future generations. My father, Graham Jones III, was visiting us in Sydney this week which made it easy to sit down at the kitchen table and talk through his story as executor of his father's estate. Digging into the application on our family resources revealed a lot about my family's story that I hadn't heard before. His story is very much a traditional one, delivering the tax, minimization, and asset distribution strategy laid out for him by his father. But it's an engaging insight into the challenges that can come even with this basic approach. This story goes all the way back to the Louisiana Purchase. Take a listen. My father, Graham Jones III, uh, is here with me today, and I guess I'd like to start off by asking Dad, uh, how did the family come into its wealth? Good morning, Tiffany. I think it probably goes back to my father, your grandfather. Initially, uh, he was in an area in Louisiana, just north of New Orleans, that was relatively undeveloped. He was working there as a uh, pilot for Pan American Airways. He got an opportunity to invest in some land, about 1,600 acres, which um, in 1950 was quite a large piece of land at a relatively very reasonable price. It was primarily cut over timberland. It didn't have much access. Uh, As the years went on, he began to develop it for cattle and for soybeans, but only in a very minor role. Then they built a bridge across the lake to New Orleans, and the land literally... Uh, went up probably 20 to 30 times in value by the end of the 1960s. Um, And it became quite a large piece of property in terms of of money and and, uh, perhaps uh, in in terms of generating money, primarily due to selling off pieces and parcels of it occasionally for subdivision development, that type of thing. Part of that money enabled him to purchase a, um, a mobile home park in Washington, which had about 300 mobile homes, and that was in the 1970s. That, again, tripled in value by the end of the 1980s. He passed away in 1993, and the primary reason that I came onto the scene was because of tax implications, both for the Washington property and for the Louisiana property. Um, But in terms of the the wealth of the property, it was probably easier to subdivide it, break it up, and distribute it. And that was his idea to do it in the the most tax-efficient way possible, in other words, to pay the least amount of federal and state taxes. As a result, he set up a trust. And I became the trustee after the estate had gone uh, through probate after he passed away by about 1994, about a year after probate. I was both the executor and the trustee of the estate. Uh, Again, my mother was in as a co-executor. The majority of the estate passed on to her, and then she continued to administer that. She passed away 15 years later in uh, 2008. Uh, but she had the majority of that estate. 
And so we had to come up with an idea, some concept where we couldn't just sell it off as raw land. So I began to develop a little more of an income stream with the property. And event that took probably the better part of 10 or 12 years. And then over a period of time, we began to slide certain pieces of the property off to the various heirs. Uh, there were five of us. And in an effort to keep it within the family, my father had set up something where the spouses, in this case, there were four spouses uh, in uh, 1990, signed off their marital rights to the property. Now, this created a, if you will, a family dynamic that wasn't necessarily, I believe, what he wanted, but, and it created some hard feelings. Uh, nevertheless, as the years went by, it turned out that uh, there were three divorces and then remarriages and what have you. Luckily, we didn't have to get into that situation because the land did not go with the divorce. Um, and the, the, the marital right to the property, to half of the property, had already been actually turned over to the trust that he had founded. So that, that saved me a great deal of legal hassle. Other than that... Uh, it was pretty straightforward, just amount of, just attempting to maximize the income stream, which was never really that effective uh, with the except my mother again had the mobile home park and that provided for for her well-being all during that time. So I simply administered the properties in Louisiana. Eventually they began to slide off, be developed, and uh, then we moved on. When she died, I was again the trustee of her trust. Uh, it was uh, during the, the Great Recession in the United States, 2008, 2009. We were fortunate in being able to sell the mobile home park quickly. We made an equal division of the net profits. And within about 18 months, we had uh, liquidated her estate. Let me ask you, because you touched on a couple of areas that I want to dive into in a little more detail. Let's start with the purpose um, going back to your grandfather, your father, my grandfather, and then subsequently to the second generation, we'll call it, which were the five siblings. What was the purpose of the wealth? Was it clear? Was it articulated by your father down to the family and your mother down to the family? Not specifically. What it basically was, was set up so that he could move off into the trust, the maximum amount uh, of tax-free valuation. When I took it over initially, about 94, that was $600,000, $700,000. Uh, later on, when my mother died, it had gone up to almost $5 million. So in neither case did I really have to deal with the tax implications of what was happening. I think that was the primary driver of setting up the trust. Prior to that, he just had a will, and the will would have been probated, and whatever was left there, that uh, the majority of which would have gone to my mother, your grandmother, uh, for her well-being and maintenance during her lifetime, that simply was distributed as quickly as possible. That was that's clear. Approach. I mean, look, it, and it, not in every case do families in business necessarily see the need to create a lasting legacy or an enduring right. family name. More often, we're seeing families where there is a pool of assets 
that either are being protected, as in the case of the trusts and the marital write-offs, or um, being utilized. And right. so I'd love to talk a little bit about that because you touched on that in a, in a moment around strategy. But I do want to pick up this issue around some of the dynamics that you mentioned at play um, or briefly touched on. Tell me a little bit about the understanding on the part of each of the five siblings, so the second generation, as to what that purpose of the wealth was. You had a clear understanding as the executor. Was it shared by everybody? Did they also know what was happening? I guess I should should say that I'm I'm the eldest son. So in a kind of a dynastic, southern dynastic way, it sort of passed on to me and I sort of picked up the mantle, if you will. I think it was just sort of assumed that should I be of sound mind and body, so to speak, when uh, when my father or mother passed away, that I would be a sort of a guiding hand. It was just set up that way. A lot of a lot of uh, cases, that's not the case. Uh, I didn't have a problem doing that. Uh, I had a very uh, secure job. I was working at the time uh, with the airline, so I had time and I had uh, I had the education and what have you to be able to go ahead and sit down with my father before he died, get an idea of where he wanted to go in terms of tax strategy. And I guess what you'd have to say is the strategy that we were using was primarily to minimize taxation, what we call the death tax or the pass-on, generational pass-on tax. We found that it wasn't effective to pass it on to grandchildren. It, It took too long, and by the time, because of what was happening in the government at the time, we had no way of knowing 20 years from now whether all that would be taxed or not. But what we could deal with was what was on the books now and perhaps tax-wise uh, within a, a certain, say, uh, presidential tenure within the next three to four years. We were pretty sure what, what, we, what the impact, the fiscal impact would be. We tried not to look down the way a generation or two because you have no idea. It could be taxed, uh, you know, at 90%, which was the way it was a generation ago. So we tried to keep it, uh, we tried to focus within a short range period of time. Take the assets, value them as much as we can, get some sort of indication of uh, what the external forces were for real estate, because that's primarily 90% was real estate and see whether or not we could take advantage of the ups and the downs in the market to maximize our profit and to get it out to the beneficiaries, the five of us, as much as possible. Two of us were actually relatively actively involved, myself and my third brother, uh, your Uncle Guyan. Uh, he's, he dealt with the real estate in Louisiana and also in Washington for my mother. So he was, he was very effective from that point of view. I was effective from the point of a trustee and to keep everybody else pretty well apprised of what was happening. The other three sort of backed out. They had their own lives. They were going on. They were not living anywhere near the pri- the primary properties in Louisiana. So it was all done at arm's length. Yeah. And would you say there were any conflicts in the family when, say, the will was read and it was clear what role you would play? Your brother, third brother, my uncle, stepped up and said... Happy to get involved. This is an area where I have skills and expertise and an interest. The other three backed away right away. No problems at all. Or was there any tension you had to resolve? And if so, how did you? I think there was probably tension as long as my mother was alive. And the tendency to go to her directly, even though we were co-trustees of the original trust that my father set up. 
uh, if they could contact her, I think there was a certain dynamic where it was the child talking to his mother or her mother. And as a result, some of the things kind of drifted away. I sort of deferred to her decisions on that part, even though she was getting into her late 70s and early 80s. She was still um, relatively uh, cognizant of what was going on, and she still could make decisions. And so I deferred to her for certain for certain gifts that were probably given to the kids that weren't necessarily given in um, in equal proportion, the way my father's thought it probably should be done. More toward a sort of uh, responding to a certain requests sort of thing. That happens sometimes. Eventually, we we approached a lawyer in Washington, and he said, you're not going to be able to see the best tax advantage by having co-trustees. So he suggested that she back out, become a beneficiary, and I take over the trustee duties. And after that point, the disproportionate shares of income ceased. It's challenging. I mean, families, parents, now I'm a parent now, you want to be fair, but fair doesn't mean equal. And that's, you take, for example, a family where there's someone with a disability, they may need more uh, of the wealth to help make sure that they live a good life than other members of the family because of their health condition. And, or there might be members of the family who have an interest like education. They want to prolong that and they approach the family to seek out that grant or that gift. How it's decided um, needs to still appear fair, although the actual dollar amounts don't always tend to be. You're absolutely correct. Go to governance for me because I think strategy was clear, but governance, in my view, you put some trust in place. You've got clarity around one executor so there wasn't co-executors. Did you use any other structures to create that semblance of fairness uh, when people approached you? I think the the most important thing that I found over over you know administering these estates over a period of probably of from ninety four to about ten, so it was pretty close to sixteen seventeen years, was transparency. If you're the executor and you are charged with an equal division and your parents anticipate that all children will share equally in the estate and give you that responsibility, then over a period of time, the only way to to cut through the family dynamic, the sibling rivalry that extends and you know throughout the, the life of the family is to try to be as transparent as possible. You have to copy everybody. You should uh, keep your... Lines of communication open probably at no less than three or four times a year and give them an update on what the estate's doing, what the trusts are doing, how you anticipate uh, selling or dividing going forward, whether or not you've uh, got some kind of an income stream such as the trailer park, uh, mobile home park type of thing. And what your what your intention of dividing it up is. some will be more interested in them than others, but everyone has to have the same letter. And what if they want to approach you for a grant or a gift? Was there a, a way to do that, a process that was followed so it was also seen as fair? Not not so much in the governance documents. Uh, obviously, as an executor, you have a wide range of choices to go to go ahead and subdivide whatever your your. In, in essence, controlling, which is the estate, you can subdivide it and send it out. If you 
become to if you become uh, in a in a sense if you begin to micromanage to the point where you're trying to set up certain uh, pockets uh, as you as you pointed out perhaps for education or for disability or for medical purposes or what have you you open Pandora's box in in the sense that you find yourself constantly defending your actions as opposed to explaining what you want to do and following those actions directly that's why it's got to be transparent you want to keep special uh circumstances to a minimum in addition to what you pointed out one of the circumstances we ran into is a difference in income among the beneficiaries of the estate obviously if someone let us say is one of the children is doing very well and making three or four hundred thousand dollars a year and the other person let us say uh, is a teacher and making uh, eighty or ninety thousand dollars a year uh, they both have children. Those children are not going to share equally. It's not going to appear that everybody has a fair shake. Uh, the teacher may want to delve into the estate more quickly in terms of uh, what she wants to do with her kids, whereas the other person uh, takes no uh, or really ha has no reason to go into the estate. So they become more isolated. And that also, and it fall, and you find that happening. You can't, you can't play favorites the way your parents can. The original generating, the wealth generating contingent has a hundred percent control. They don't care. You are their children. You basically will take what they give you. When you're the executor, they're not your children. They're your siblings. And so you must be, and, and likewise, your extended family, with the exception that you mentioned about health considerations or something. If you're going to educate, you have to educate all of them. You can't just say 20000 for you or 50000 for you, but no, you're making a good income. You can handle that. No, it you has could, to go to everyone. You could. What we're seeing families do is ring fence the wealth at the time of the passing of, say, the first generation of the originator of the wealth. Say you have... 100% uh, of the wealth to distribute, 40% may be retained in the business and be uh, continued to be grown and enhanced. 40% may be distributed out into dividends at that point in time. Some people do feel they have some uh, personal choice and freedom and autonomy and how they choose to spend some of the money, the gift. And then say 20% uh, or a certain subset might get locked up in things like um, uh, investing uh, into philanthropy or uh, profit with purpose or a lot of these ideas about charitable givings that can be perpetuated and sustain that family's name for many generations if it's managed by the family or an outside party and future generations might want to participate in that. So I guess a couple of thoughts I'd like to think about as we come to close. Next generation becoming much more in vogue these days. Um, huge focus on developing that next generation. So I'm thinking 40 and under who are coming into the wealth over the next five to 10 years, significant dollars will be transferred to that population as the current generation's age. And not just the money, but the decision-making and the dynamics involved. Um, you describe a time when maybe that model of collaboration where all five siblings would have come together around a table four times a year and decided on the family wealth may not have been as in vogue. 
it's definitely more trending at the moment. I'd be interested as you reflect back, do you think you would have done things differently with that future generation, next generation in mind as to how you brought together your four siblings or brothers and sisters to make decisions? Did you enjoy being, in essence, the sole decision maker or would you have preferred to have shared that decision making with the family? An excellent, an excellent question because I've kind of, in essence, reflected back on this, you know, since we terminated the trust and everything about 2010, so it's been about five or six years, whether or not we could have been more timely in getting the money out to them more quickly, whether or not we actually maximized the amount that they got, which, which I felt my father wanted us to do, maximize it and distribute it. But you're, you're very right on in that a lot of family wealth isn't just set up in real estate. And that perhaps if you have an ongoing business or something like that, it's going to generate your income stream is going to be generated by the business. It will generate the wealth that could continue on. It could be a transgenerational type, you know, of uh, wealth development, if you will, wealth um, management. Generation. It could, and with our particular situation, the what I I think it was easier, particularly when it comes to selling and distributing cash, that if you try to get four or five people in the same room to determine timing, the time to spin off a property or the time to accelerate a sale, particularly when it comes to dealing with property values and perhaps having to take a hit or perhaps having to negotiate or do things on the table that doesn't work well in a, uh, in a consensus driven environment. It doesn't exactly correct. And a consensus driven environment trying to settle on the proper price of the property would probably lose you the sale. A role clarity in your case helped by giving discretion to key people to make decisions at the right Absolutely. point in time. You partnered with your brother who showed interest in that property asset development and sale, did create a wealth, as I understand, you did create more of a wealth generating asset That's for correct. a period of time. And the other three members of the family chose to disengage. Had there been discussion about ring fencing some of that wealth for other investment where the family could have put their own personal spin on it, would you have done that? I think back. I would have. I think had we say, uh, and it, we 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 touched on that with the mobile home park because that could have been a continual wealth producing stream over a period of time. But then it became a point, like with any other endeavor, that some people are going to be into maximizing profit. Some people are building infrastructure for future times. Other people are taking profits and reinvesting it in the, in the enterprise where other people want the money now. So you find it very difficult in any corporation and in the family room business itself to get a consensus of opinion. Uh, it's, it's management by, um, by consensus management, uh, you know, with within a um, a group of people, is never very effective. You can't have four presidents. 
all making decisions on their own or for our board of directors with no primary leader. And that's what you sometimes come into with a family because, and, and, and as you pointed out, the family dynamics, the sibling dynamics are such that we're not all boards of directors. We don't have, some people are very heavily invested in the family, others are not. So we found it very difficult to pull everybody together. In our case, it worked out much better to have one person, uh, trans, again, I go back to transparency, one person enunciating exactly what they would like to see happen. And this happens right at probate. As soon as the parent passes away, the probate comes down, the executor just writes a letter, gets everybody together and say, this is what I believe my father or my mother wanted to happen. If you set the tone, then you can continue on in a relatively unencumbered manner. But if somebody doesn't put it down initially, I'm afraid what happens is bad feelings begin to fester and you may not even be aware of them until somebody says, you know, you know, she thought she should have gotten more. He thought he should have gotten more. They're mad that you sold that. You can't second judge that. Let them know where you want to go. Ask them if there's any reason. Another thing that we held up, and I think that that was good, is if somebody wanted, one of the beneficiaries wanted to purchase or take a portion out of the trust. They were willing to do so at cost at any time. It was only done once in 15 years, but nevertheless, on a small piece of property, we left that open. So no one felt that they were shut out. But someone has to make those decisions and rule by consensus or decision by consensus didn't seem to work very well in this situation. And again, remember, we were pretty well tax driven. So, well, but, that, but that's a good place to end. Dad, thank you for making this the first welcome, of the Tiffany. podcast. Absolutely. I enjoyed it. 